So, yeah, as Jesse said, we're going to be continuing in this mini-series within Proverbs. And here's the thing about expositional preaching. I don't think this is on any pastor's top ten list except maybe old-school Mark Driscoll. Um, No one sets out... No one sets out to say, yeah, I want to talk about sex. Um, this, is, this, this would not be in my sermon list if I was a topical preacher, but I'm not. We're going through the book of Proverbs, and so going through the book of Proverbs, we're dealing with, with what um, Solomon deals with. And as Jesse said, this is the word of God for his people. And a wise father has much to say about relationships with women with his young son. There's a lot of wisdom in that. And so this is part three of three. And so if it's your first time here, or you miss one of the other two, um, they are building on one another. And so uh, they are best understood in terms of the series. So if you miss part one or two, they are up on the website. Um, so, so far, week one, we've dealt with the end of sexual temptation. It's, a, it's logical conclusion, seductions, destruction. Last week, we looked at the, the negative side, all of the the consequences along the way that happen in the path to pain, and now God's pattern for sexual ethics, the path to pleasure. Um, one of the things that's great about my relationship with my grandmother, who you know, most of you know, is um, each week I get the unvarnished truth when I get her sermon assessment. Um, and uh, so when I visit her in the hospital last week, she wanted to talk about the series, and she could not believe that someone was actually talking about this in church, and she was worried, what are people going to think? Um, but she encouraged me um, about how well I had handled it, and she said, this has been a really tough text, but when you get to the end, that's the icing on the cake. And yes, it is. We are at the icing on the cake in this, in the, in this passage. And so um, part of what's at play here is the problems and the consequences that we saw last week. What's the answer and the antidote to that? Now, there, are, um, there is a, a broader answer, devotion to the Lord, and that's what we'll, we're, where we will end. But um, practically and along the way, um, the bad news leads up to the good, and the good news is God has a plan for sexual temptation. God has a plan in marriage. God has a, a good plan. And all of the, the wise words of the parents so far, um, they're great guidelines and, and safeguards. But what's really going to safeguard this young man as he approaches marriage is that he honors God in his marriage. And part of that is robust physical intimacy. We're going to get into that a little bit this morning. Um, And so Jesse touched on it, but I want to reiterate again, all of God's word is breathed out by the Holy Spirit, written by a human pen for our instruction, for for our uplifting, for our encouragement, for our correction. And so we should be able to talk about it if it's in scripture, if it's in a way that is edifying to us and glorifying to God. So it's interesting talking to some of you uh, dealing with sex the last couple weeks because some of you were like, oh, I grew up in good homes where we discussed these things, we had open dialogue, but you are the exception, not the rule. Some of you even grew up hearing that books like Song of Solomon's or texts like this shouldn't be in the Bible because they are, they're, they're vulgar. So if, if our Western prudishness um, seeks to correct scripture or to edit out things that make us uncomfortable, we need to check ourselves. Because that didn't exist then. I think part of the, a big part of the reason why our culture is the way it is, Jesse touched on this as well, is because we don't have good answers to these things. We don't have a a, a biblical approach to responding to sexual temptation and sexual celebration that is against God's design. We can say we're, we're against that, don't do that, but can we celebrate marriage? Can we celebrate sex within marriage? Can we have mature, dignified conversations about things that, that Scripture does and that will affect everyone in this room? Even if you are called to singleness, you still feel the the tempt, the tendency and the pull to be connected to someone else. And so everyone has to deal with this in one way or another. So this morning, um, we're going to deal with the content and purpose of this text. 
And uh, there are some adult imagery that we're going to deal with, but we're going to handle them honestly, and we're going to handle them uh, sensibly. And, um, and I just kind of want to remind you that the, like this, this tension that we feel, like, I don't know if we can talk about sex in church, that didn't exist then. Throughout most cultures, and through most of history, people have honest conversations about this. I think... Uh, um, the Victorian ideal kind of creates, there's, this, there's public topics and then there's, uh, there's uh, private topics. And um, uh, I was going to mention this later. Uh, there's a Derek Kidner quote that I have in verse 18, um, but I think it's better here. So Derek Kidner in his commentary on Proverbs says this. He says, it is highly important to see sexual delight in marriage as God-given. And history confirms that when marriage is viewed chiefly as a business arrangement, not only is God's bounty misunderstood, but human passion seeks other outlets. Isn't that the truth? All right, let's jump into our text. I'm going to finish off chapter 5, beginning in verse 15, and I'm going to read through verse 23. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always with her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his own sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and ask you to bless the preaching and reading of your word. We know that it is living and active. We know that it does not come back void. We know that it was given by the Spirit. It is understood by the Spirit. It is applied by the Spirit. And so we ask that your Spirit this morning would speak through a faulty messenger to faulty listeners. May your design for humanity be lifted up so that you may be glorified. And may we see all of this pointing us to Christ. May we see his faithfulness, his love, the faithful husband who would never forsake his bride. May all of this Drive us to serve and honor him in our lives in whatever station you call us to. And it is in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we pray. Amen. All right, so the first thing I want you to see in this initial section, um, 15 through 18. Uh, if you're reading through and you notice, you've kind of done some, some studying, you've noticed a theme. The Themes of water and synonyms like that. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water, uh, springs, streams, fountains. Um, this is meant to draw attention, but this is also meant to paint a, to paint a picture. Uh, the repetition of this, this imagery is euphemistic for sexual pleasure. Every one of them. I don't write the mail, I just read it. Um, that's what he, he's, he's getting at here. He wants to extol and encourage. And so um, I want to treat the whole, we'll deal with some of the imagery individually, but we won't get into the technicality of it. But I I want you to see that he has a very clear message that that he's sending here. There is supposed to be this, this flowing abundance of pleasure within marriage, and you're supposed to partake of it and enjoy it. That's, that's what he's, what he's trying to get across here. Um, And so this reads much like the song of Solomon. Um, and so I just want to give you one verse as an example. Song of Solomon 5.1. Uh, there's, there's, there's much of it in there. And Jonathan's very glad I didn't ask him to read from Song of Solomon this morning. Um, but Song of Solomon, verse, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, I came to my garden, 
Speaking about his wife here, my sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my milk. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Um, You can say that and glorify God. You can. Uh, We can read that and glorify God. I just want to tell you all that before we dig in any further. Um, So what's most important I want you to see in verse 15 is the repetition. So the, the, the repetition of what holds water, the cistern in the well, but the other thing you might miss, your own. This is the foundation for the rest of everything that is to follow. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. This is the covenantal bond within marriage. There is a belonging, there is a union. We read earlier in Genesis 2, the, the two becoming one, you are a part of one another, that is where you drink. And that is only where you drink, your own. This is meant to contrast the adulterous woman that we've dealt with in the past few chapters. This is her at um, the end of chapter two. So you will be delivered, this is uh, Proverbs 2.16, so you'll be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulterous Uh, with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. She's a covenant breaker. She does not care about her oaths. She does not care about her allegiances. This is another way in which you you avoid being like her. Drink from your own cisterns. Let's deal with these two words. You have to make sure you enunciate when you say cistern. Um, Because the the other option is, is a little awkward. I told this to Sheree earlier, I was, I was joking earlier in the week, and I said, my, my, my cistern, and she said, you're what? And I said, cistern. I had, I had to really enunciate, um, because drinking from your own sister, it's a whole, it's, this, that, that's a whole different type of religion, they're right across the street. Um, so, what a cistern was, um, is a hole in the ground, I love when the Lord provides opportunities for that, um, <laughs> What a cistern was is a hole in the ground to, to, um, to capture and collect water. And so this is obviously important in an, in an arid environment where you don't get a lot of rain and uh, you don't have a lot of options for, if you don't live near a stream, a cistern would be very important. If you were a man who had to care for a family, you wanted your own cistern. You had to make sure you had a daily supply of water. So every man would have understood this, this, this imagery of like, like, like now, like everyone has their own water bottle that they carry around. Then you would have wanted your own, your own cistern that you, would have, that you would have provided for yourself and your family for. So that picture was um, important. This is a, a man-made hole closer to the surface. But the second one is a well. Now the well goes a little bit deeper and the, and the, the well taps into underground streams and, and aquifers. So in a well, there's, this, there's this, this steady and continual supply of life-giving water. Um, and this also has in mind a particular part of the female anatomy. I'm not gonna go any further, um, but that's what's, what's there in, in the Hebrew. So this, this uh, picture of, of supply and sustenance over time in marriage is... Um, is very vivid in this first verse. Um, the, the next verse kind of asks a very pertinent question. If this is how valuable water is, if this is how valuable the, the a well of your marriage is, how should you treat it? So he asks, should, you sp- should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? If water is that valuable, in those days, you would have not taken water from a well and just tossed it into the street. That would be wasteful. That would be ridiculous. And so the question that he's asking parallel here is, should your, string, should your streams and springs be scattered? If this is what God has given you in your marriage, how should you view promiscuity? They didn't have a faucet to turn on water anytime we want. They didn't have a faucet of sexual images either. And in both of those, there's a blessing and a curse in, in our day. But in, but in their day, these, these resources were to be so protected and so it is to be within marriage. This is marital life. Protect this water. It is life-giving. It is, it is refreshing. It is good. 
Don't scatter it abroad. You would never think of recklessly scattering water abroad. And even worse, your streams of water into the streets. Streets are never a good image in Proverbs. Never. This is where the world hangs out. This is where the swindlers and the, 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 the loose women carouse. Um, they are noisy, they are dirty, they are, are smelly, they're full with unsavory people. And they are nothing like the home. The home is safe. The home it has, has love and unity. So this, this contrast of you keep your streams within the home, you don't push them out into the streets. This is what Solomon is, is trying to get at. And, and this is still a wise exhortation. Now, in those days, you would have known what streets were what. We still kind of have that. Um, but it was kind of easier to distinguish. But now we've got streets where we don't have to leave our home. The, the, the internet is, is full of dark alleys and full of all kinds of places that, that you can go and spread your affections around. And all kinds of people who are trying to lure you in, it is, it is nonstop. And even many of our streets here, even within, within small towns, you can go a couple blocks and get into some influences that you never intended to. And so even today, it is very careful, or excuse me, it is very important that you be careful what you keep in your home and what you bring into the street or what you take in from the street. And so the, the warning here in, in verse 15 and 16 is that infidelity shares what is valuable, what is intimate, and what is private and makes it cheap, common, and dirty. Infidelity takes what is meant to hold the home together and glorify God and throws it into the street where they throw the trash. And there's something else at play here because typically... The man is unfaithful, well, then it could lead to some validation for his wife to be unfaithful. And he's saying, if you throw your streams out into the street, how would you feel if it was in the reverse as well? Because when we're thinking selfishly, we're like, oh, this would be good for me. But there's not a person in here thinking, yeah, I'll let the other do the same thing. When we're thinking selflessly, we only think about the consequences of, of, of ourselves. But if we take a step back and said, how would I feel? How betrayed and hurt would I be if my well, my fountain was spread out into the streets? You would be devastated. So make sure that you're not perpetuating on your side. Uh, and, and he's speaking to the men here, but it works both ways. Those of you who have been married and have had that, that uh, nightmare that your spouse is with someone else, and you, and you, and you wake up angry and, and uh, terrified. You know a glimpse of that. Maybe it's just, maybe it's just me, but um, this is important. And that's why verse 17 is where it is. Let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. It, it logically follows. These streams are meant to be cherished at home, not in the street. And so these, these, these pleasures are for you. They're not for everyone else. I was thinking about this. Um, one of the things I love to do in Florida is to walk out into the woods. I've mentioned this before. But I love to find streams and see streams. Like I would have loved to be an explorer who comes upon a stream for the first time. And you come upon this, this, this fresh, drinkable water that, that comes out of the ground. And you're like, this is great. This is nourishment. I want to camp out here. But what happens when you invite strangers? What happens when you invite strangers? So many of the, the fresh springs and waters here, um, strangers come and they stir up the dirt. They bring, bring their animals, and then the, the water becomes contaminated. This, this fresh spring, hold on to it. Guard it. Don't let other people contaminate it. And so if you do, there, there's kind of this logical, another logical conclusion. Let your fountain be blessed. Let your own fountain be blessed. What does that mean? You've got a good fountain at home. Encourage her. Build her up. Cherish her. Men, this is a call to you. Bless your fountain. God has given you 
what can be life and healing to your bones in a spouse if you are married. Bless her, encourage her, build her up. Husbands and wives, in the best sense possible, should be cheerleaders for each other. We should be each other's biggest advocates. I think what, also, what often happens day after day, year after year, you become each other's biggest critics. And so within a home, there is to be blessing and there is to be rejoicing. Let your fountain be blessed and, and rejoice in the wife of your youth. What would marriages look like in the church? What would the country look like if the church rejoiced in marriages? If the church rejoiced with, with sex within marriage? The world shouts about pleasure. And the church has hidden away the truth. And we wonder why we're being drowned out. We wonder why the world has more influence on young people and on people growing up in the church. Because God has created a desire within all of us, emotionally and physically, to be united to someone. We're created for communion, and the church says, don't talk about it. What lesson are we telling them? As Kidner said, if we make marriage transactional, they're going to look for pleasure elsewhere, and they are, and they are finding it. But they're also finding emptiness and and hurt and disappointment. That's why he's saying, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Saying God gave us sex just for procreation is like saying God only gave us food for nourishment. It's only half true. When we say that, it misses God's love for his creatures and it robs him of glory when we fail to praise him for good and pleasurable gifts that he gives us. We can glorify God for sex just like we can glorify God for food. Amen? Amen. And we know that we of all people should be joyful because this is just one of many areas. Think about it. God told us to be fruitful and multiply. He could have made sex miserable. He gave us food to continue our lives. He could have made food to taste disgusting. I don't know why you'd want to live, but this is how much he loves us. He gives us things that are pleasurable and enjoyable so that we can glorify him in it. So that every time we take a bite of pizza or whatever it is, we're like, praise God for taste buds. (laughs) And husbands and wives, you should be able to praise God too. And I will leave it at that. So let's continue on in that sentence. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer and graceful doe. Uh, this is common poetic language for deer who are graceful, stunning creatures. And if you've never been in the woods and seen a deer walk out and like sunrise in, in a meadow, they are majestic creatures. And so Solomon, the, the, the wordsmith that he is, calls his wife a deer. Um, and it is, it is a very high praise for this, this, this beautiful creature. And when he sees his wife, he sees what we saw in Genesis 2. That God didn't just make woman, he fashioned her. He created her as the ideal complement. This, this, this beautiful representation of, of, of humanity that is so much like him, yet not like him. No other creature is like woman to man. It's true. I got a lot of nods from guys. It is very true. Um, God knew this. And so he creates a helper for him. And I, I love Matthew Henry's language. says, language um, in the creation of woman. He says that God didn't create woman out of Adam's head to be above her. He didn't create woman out of Adam's feet to be below her, to, to be below him, excuse me. But he created her out of Adam's side to be next to him. And this, this beautiful picture of man and, and woman. And uh, Solomon is a hopeless romantic. And if you want to read more, you can read more in uh, Song of Solomon. Uh, especially chapter 4 and 7. I recommend that for a date night. Um, just, just saying. Uh, so verse, yeah, continue on. This lovely deer, graceful doe. Uh, the verse kind of cuts off the middle of the sentence, but we will pick up in um, let her breasts fill you at all times. Let me tell you what this Hebrew word means. It means breasts. <laughs> um, it, it, it means that 
that part of the, uh, female, uh, the female anatomy, uh, an anatomy uh, that is pleasing to men. That's what it means. I was thinking about this. I might be the only pastor in the South today to mention breast. I'm probably the only pastor in the history of Sanford to mention breast and not be talking about fried chicken. Um, <laughs> but it's here in the text. And um, if you are offended, uh, let me just say, God gave women breasts to nurse babies and for pleasure. And he gave them to every woman in the room. Um, and so if he did, we should be able to talk, speak of them in the way that Scripture does. Not in a vulgar way, not in an immature way, but in a way that, that edifies women and glorifies God. Because that's how Solomon sees it. Again, read Song of Solomon. He, he exalts his wife. He, he, he lifts her up in a way that in, encourages her and, uh, and uh, builds her up. And so um, that is important for this, this text. And he, he, he's drawing on something that his son can understand. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Um, I want you to notice the repetition there again. At all times and always. This is lifelong enjoyment. This is contentment with your wife. This is not meant to be some fleeting fling. The adulterous woman, the stranger outside, cannot satisfy you always, at all times. Marriage is meant to be this lifelong union, till death do we part. And there's an interesting Hebrew word here at the end of 19, shagah. So this is used three times in this, this passage. And here's the difficult thing about translating, especially Hebrew. This word has uh, seven main meanings. So it can mean um, to be intoxicated, to stumble, meander as if drunk. It can, be, it can mean to be led away, to, to be in error, or to be led away with passion. The same word. And so translators kind of have their, their hands full. But I want you to see intoxication here, intoxication in 19, and led astray in 23 are all the same Hebrew word, and we'll deal with each one when we get there. But so what he's doing is he's drawing the Hebrew reader's attention, and we miss this in the English, um, that the same passion that is good in marriage, in, in sin, leads many astray. This, this like everything um, on this side of the fall, what God has given us for good and for, for pleasure, we can glorify him with, or we can make selfish to lead us away from God. He made all things good. It is sin that, that, that distorts them. And so we have to have a right view of sex. That it is good created by God in its proper context. But abused, used selfishly, it will, it will lead you away. And so this, this intoxication, um, we, you know, the Bible talks about being sober-minded and, and, and do not be drunk. Because the, it's the idea of being out of control. Something else has control over you, and, and you, are, you are not in control of your own functions. Within marriage, this is a good thing. This is a good thing that, that, that you, in a sense, are under the spell of your, of your, your, your spouse. That's all you can see. It's, just, it's a great picture. Um, but if not, it can lead you away. And so this devotion between husband and wife, this, this kind of being under the control of your, of your spouse, obviously, should point us to the, the, the pinnacle of this, of this picture. Christ, who is the faithful groom, the one who will never go to an adulteress. Imagine if Christ were as weak as we are. Imagine if he was so easily pulled aside. Imagine if he let go of us every time another pretty woman walked by. We'd be doomed. But he is faithful. He is true. Not only that, he came to purchase his bride. He, he, he paid the bride price. But he also sent a guard, a spirit to protect. He's going away to prepare a home for his, his bride. And he says, no one will snatch her out of my hand. She is mine. I am jealous for her. I would never let my streams go into the streets. You want to know how much I value my bride? 
The price I paid is my own life. I didn't come selfishly. The epitome of coming selflessly. Say, I will die for her because she is worth it to me. This devotion that we see in marriage is a small glimpse of Christ's devotion to us and our devotion to him. If we remember our Savior and remember his devotion to us, how should we be intoxicated? And not like these stupid Christian songs that write love songs to Jesus, but I mean in, in, in a godly way. How much should we be overcome and under the control of our Savior that nothing else matters? Being drunk with love, as Solomon says, again, in the most godly, reformed way possible. Um, so here's what he says in 19. And then he, the tool that Hebrews use often, and this is a great teaching tool, you ask good questions. Why should you be intoxicated? Same word here. My son with a forbidden woman the, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. This forbidden woman, the adulteress, i.e., not your wife, your own cistern, not the strange woman down the street. Why would you, this intoxication, this, this beauty that's meant for marriage, why would you give it to another? Why would you go out in the streets and roll around in the dirt? And then there's an interesting word that's used here in the embrace, the bosom of, a, of an adulteress. This is a different Hebrew word. This is not an anatomical word. This is a, a figurative word. It's, it's not necessarily about a part of the body, but it's, it's, it's a proximity to the body. The bosom is what is held close to the chest. And so I want you to see this, this picture in Isaiah 49 through 11. So the writer of Proverbs is saying, don't get pulled in. Don't be close to this adulterous woman. Don't fall into her lap is almost another way of, of, of saying it. Um, but that closeness is reserved for husband and wife, but it's also spoken of in a way with the Lord and his people. So this is uh, Isaiah 40. I want to read 9 through 11. Go on up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, is the precursor to the gospel. O Zion, herald of the gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Notice, to the nations, God is to be feared. He's got a mighty hand. His recompense is with him. He, his arm rules for him. Yet to his people, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is a gospel promise from Isaiah, the closeness of our Savior. The almighty God of the universe is a shepherd who takes us like sheep into his bosom, holds us close to his chest. This picture of a God who loves so much he will seek the one sheep and bring him back so that everyone may celebrate with him, that he will save and protect his sheep, that he will love them in such a way that he is gentle and he is caring. Our God can bring nations to their knees, but he will stoop down to pick up the lowly and drag them in close to him. And so this intimacy that Solomon is getting at, don't cheapen real intimacy by being with an adulteress. The intimacy that, that it should show us that our Savior has drawn us into his, into his breast. How dare we be drawn away? And this isn't just a sexual temptation. This is a heart temptation too. Because not every temptress is promising sexual pleasure. There are many temptresses in this world. There are many idols in this world that, that, that desire us to fall into their lap, to find comfort in the bosom of another. 
Israel's history is full of warnings not to commit harlotry, to be prostitutes with other nations, be faithful to your God, because this is your God. He is powerful and mighty to save, and he is a good shepherd who loves you. So, okay, we got it. Do not commit adultery. Good. Um, But I think this brings up another important discussion, something that isn't talked about in a right way in the church too often. Um, Something else that's promoted in our culture. So most of us would say, and I don't know if this is a problem in this church, but I I think it's good for us to have an answer to this. Because most of us would say, yeah, we we, we don't commit adultery and we don't agree with that, yet we think lightly about dressing and acting in a certain way that incites adultery. Let me tell you what I, what I mean. You know, we need to be able as Christians to say why we encourage modesty in dress. Not because we're, we're legalistic or we want women to dress old-fashioned, but because a woman's true beauty is, is inside. But also this this sexual pleasure that is meant for, for marriage should not be led to dishonor your husband or your future husband. And also, men are weak. We are. And you as our sister don't want to cause your, your brother to stumble. These, the, the body that God has given you is a gift and it is a beautiful thing and we should be able to encourage that in young women. But not in the way that the world does to exploit it for selfishness, for getting the attention of, of, of men. Um, speaking to our text, Solomon speaks of breasts being given between men and, and, and women. Speaks of um, a uh, bosom being this, this, this uh, place of intimacy that is reserved for you and your spouse and you and your God. I think one other thing beyond dressing um, that I don't think women, let me tell you on behalf of all men here, um, flirtation is, is a, another one. You may not realize it, but the bat of an eye, the stroking of, of, of an arm, speaking in, in a certain way, whether you realize it or not, you are bringing that man into your bosom, so to speak. And for, for guys, it doesn't always have to be the obvious thing, but that, that, that hint of if I, can get, if, if I can get validated, if I can get into this emotional bosom with, 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 with someone, I'm going to feel like more of a man. This is a struggle that every one of us have. And so how we carry ourselves, women, you've been given great gifts to be used rightfully. But there are also powerful things that can lead men to, to struggle. And so this is something that we need to be able to address within the church. We do... We, act the way we act, we dress the way we dress, we speak the way we speak as brothers and sisters because we want to honor Christ, not to mimic the world that sexualizes everything. Um, so I thought that was important to address. All right, so let's look at this, this last section here in Proverbs, and this one will go a little bit faster because um, now we're getting into the negative part. Uh, this final section, he kind of addresses the warnings, but he uses previous themes that we've seen already in chapter 5, and he just reverses them. So beginning in verse 21, 4, a man's ways, there's, you know, paths walking again, are before the eyes of the Lord. So up until this point, he's made a personal appeal. He is hoping that his son's affections for his wife will be the motivator to be faithful. Now he gives the higher justification, the theological justification. You know why you should be faithful? Because the eyes of the Lord are before all man's ways. He sees, he knows all, and he rewards all who honor him. Fidelity, faithfulness, honors him. How easy that is to forget. We think we can hide in back alleyways and dark corners of our heart as if God can't see us. We all do it. He reminds the son, even if your desire for your wife won't motivate you, God sees all. Not only does he see all, but he ponders all his, referring to man's, paths. This is unlike the woman in verse 6 who does not ponder her paths. Her ways wander and she does not know it. God is not someone who is reacting to us, who does not know what, is, what, what will happen. 
God knows all things past, present, and future. God controls all things past, present, and future, and he weighs them. He weighs all of your actions, and he knows every single one of them. And he weighs everyone's paths. This word path has come up so much, but it's these, when do we get a path in in the forest? It's when someone walks it again and again and again. These are the habits of life, the uh, tendencies. God knows all of your habits and all of your tendencies. That is terrifying and comforting at the same time. If you just heard that God knows all of your paths, all of your habits, all of your tendencies, and you got scared for a moment, you love your sin too much. But if you hear that God knows all my paths, he knows every way that I walk, and you are comforted, you know how good your God is. You know how merciful your God is. And so in our sin, we should be terrified because God sees all. But in Christ... We should be comforted because God sees all and he still loves me and he still provides for me and he still directs my paths even though I run as fast as I can toward the cliff every time I get a chance. But not so with the wicked. Verse 22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. They set a trap for themselves like we saw in in, uh, chapter one and there's this vivid picture The sinner, the wicked, he is held fast in the cords of his sin. What's being said here is the sins that we hold on that we hold on to will soon hold on to us. The sins that you hold tightly to, they will soon hold you tightly. The sin that you keep giving into, the sin that you keep giving energy to, you will soon serve and you will soon become a slave to. That is what it is with the wicked. He is held fast in his own cords of his own sin. In our desire to be the smartest person in the room, to think we have all things figured out, we think that our ability to choose sin and fleeting pleasures makes us free. It doesn't. Our own sinful desires become the cords and the ropes that enslave us. A perfect example is Samson. If you know Samson, Judges 16, Samson had a lot of weaknesses, chief among them women. Delilah, whose name goes down in infamy as the ultimate temptress. Imagine how tempting this this foreign woman is. She says, tell me your, your, your secret because you love me. And three times, she binds him up. She takes cords, she takes strings, she takes rope, she takes locks of his hair and tries to bind him up. And he still keeps giving in. She, she proves every time he wakes up, I'm trying to deliver you over. And he still goes to sleep trusting her. Is that a, not a man or what? But all of the imagery here. Her deception draws in his lust in the arms of a forbidden woman. And he literally falls asleep in her lap, the text says, in her bosom. And she ties him up with the cords of his own sin, which become shackles in the next paragraph. He is led away in shackles after he is tied up in cords because of his own lust. And it ultimately leads to his death. This is exactly what Solomon is warning against, exactly what Sam, Samson held or fell held, head into. But I would be remiss if we didn't discuss the answer to this. And so I want you to turn to John chapter 8 and keep your finger there because we'll come back in a moment. John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees as often. Some of his best dialogues come when he's being challenged by the Pharisees. Um, so this is John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Uh, John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, they didn't understand that they were spiritual slaves. To a self-righteous Jew to say, be set free, that's what they're thinking. They're indignant. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? That's the tone that's going on here. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, held fast by the cords of their own sin. 
The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Notice the play on words here. The son remains forever. If the son sets you free as a son, you will remain forever. Jesus is giving us the precursor to the doctrine of adoption here. The right and true son, the legitimate son, must go first and pay the price so that you can become sons. If you don't become a son, you're a slave. There's only two options. There is no maybe he'll, he'll, he'll figure it out. Maybe there's this, this, this middle path. You are either slave or son. You either own the farm or you're working on it. There are, there are no other options. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So there's this, he is telling them that everyone is enslaved. By default, you are enslaved without the truth. And he says, I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Again, there are only two fathers, the father of slaves, the father of wickedness, or the father of true sons. Jesus says, without the truth, you are a slave, but with the truth, the truth that I am the way, the truth, and the life, you will live. Apart from me, you will die. And that is where we find ourselves in the last verse in Proverbs. Keep your finger in John. Proverbs 5, verse 23. He dies for lack of discipline. Remember our discussion on discipline. That discipline is what keeps you alive. Notice he dies for lack of discipline. It's a good thing. And discipline is for sons. Think about this. If God didn't discipline us, we'd be out in the cold, in the darkness, in the streets, by ourselves. And that's where the wicked die without discipline. But as sons, as co-heirs with Christ, men and women are sons in the doctrine of adoption because every son is an heir. And so as sons, sons of the truth, sons, brothers of Christ, who the Son, capital S, has set free, you're disciplined because he loves you. Because he doesn't want you to die and be a spoiled brat out in the streets with the wicked. The wicked dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Shagah again, same word. That intoxication that is good within marriage, that is sinful to an adulteress, it leads the wicked astray. The same action... Good done to the glory of God, leading to death in very different paths apart from God. So as we kind of finish up our text in Proverbs, I think this brings up a natural question. You may have been listening this entire time and thinking, well, I'm not married. Or maybe you're the one person in the room who doesn't struggle with sexual sin of some degree. And you're like, well, what does this mean for me? Well, this imagery of water and being satisfied in fountains and streams applies to every one of us. Because every one of us is tempted to drink from other streams. Every one of us is, is, is tempted to say, I know this is what God has given me. But that looks really tempting over there. Whether it is achievement, whether it is validation, whether it is covetousness, um, whether it, you're finding your identity in something else, we are all tempted to drink from muddy water. And we lap it up. And so this doesn't just have sexual implications. Just like when you're in the forest, not every spring is good to drink. And so you must know from where you, you drink. This is why we remain in John, and I want to look at John chapter 7. Should be a few verses earlier. Here's what Jesus says, John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This glimpse that we get in marriage is what is promised through salvation. Now this, he said, this is kind of John's parenthetical note here about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not glorified. Think about this. 
This, again, we don't appreciate clean water. But if Jesus promises you, like the Samaritan woman, it's like, give me this water always so that I may drink and never thirst again. He says, I am living water. And to prove it and to secure it, I will send my spirit. I'm going to put a fountain inside of you. How do we know that we'll live forever? How do we, how do we know that, we, that the saints will persevere, that we cannot lose our salvation? Because there is a spring bubbling up from within us, life upon life upon life, because the spirit of God who gives us to drink. And Jesus says, that's only through me. Come, all of you, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you living water. Here's something marriage can't give you. I can say all these beautiful things about marriage and sexual intimacy within marriage, but every married couple knows here, it's not always satisfying. It wears off. But you know what doesn't? Living water. Living water from a well that does not run dry. And I want to show you one final promise to the persevering saints in Revelation 7. Revelation 7, 17. This, this picture of the lamb upon the throne and how is he described? Revelation 7, 17 says, For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Same imagery from Isaiah. Same imagery from John 10, the good shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the promise, saints. We get a glimpse in, in, in marriage of drinking from living water, but even if you were single for the rest of your life, but you, your heart is devoted to Christ, you have something far better. You have living water, and water will never come out of your tear ducts again. You will never cry. You will never hurt. You will never die because he sustains you, because his spirit bubbles up within you. Uh, and he preserves you in his bosom. So there's a final note on your outline. Um, I'm going a little longer than I anticipated, but we're going to still cover 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is good stuff. We don't get... We'll, we won't get to talk about this again until chapter 7 of Proverbs. But after that, we probably won't talk about it again for years, so I'm trying to get it all in. First um, Corinthians chapter 7. Remember last week we looked at the end of chapter 6. Church in Corinth had a lot of sexual issues going on. Um, a couple things to note. Early in, uh, so First Corinthians chapter 6, he says that all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So you won't become a slave to anything. Um, going on, the end of chapter 6, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The same gospel reminder, if you are in Christ, the Spirit dwells within you. You, yourself, and you as a church, this is where God is worshipped and glorified in you, so glorify God. That's the preface to chapter 7. Chapter 7 begins with, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. You think you're the only one who has questions about sex? The church at Corinth wrote to Paul and said, where is sex appropriate? What do we do now that there are Christians? How do we honor God with our bodies? Paul is responding to a direct question. And Paul, as a single celibate man, says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, Paul is the primary example of someone completely devoted to the Lord. And this is amazing, but most of us are not that strong. And so Paul's saying, this is ideal. If you can be 100% devoted to the Lord and not have to be pulled, apart by, pulled aside by passions, even within marriage, that's best to give 100% of your heart to the Lord. But... Because I know that's not possible for most of us, verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Notice the language there. Your own cistern, your own well. You belong to one another. This, this beautiful monogamy within marriage. Marriage is a gift against sexual temptation. And then he goes on, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. This is something that might be tough for people. It is a right within marriage. 
conjugal rights, and if I, if I have to define that for you, get a dictionary and look it up. Um, it is a right within marriage. Why? Not as a selfish thing, not as to, to fulfill my own desires, but for the, for the, the coming together, for the, the drinking, for the, the pleasure. Not in, a, in an authoritarian way. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, nor, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife. This is in mutual submission to one another. We are now one flesh, and I give what is mine to you, and you give what is yours to me. Because I love you as my own body, as my own flesh. The one body, the, the two becoming one now share what God has given because they are bound to one another. Why? Verse 5, he gives a reason. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Don't deprive yourself except for spiritual reasons. I know how weak you are. We should know how weak we are. So that, excuse me, but then you can come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There are a lot of marriages that get derailed and run off course because there is deprivation and there is a lack of self-control. Husbands and wives, it is, I am imploring you, communicate with one another. Love one another. Serve one another. And if you were planning to get, to get married, See how that person treats others. Are they a selfish and greedy person? Run the other way. Are they someone who puts others before them, themselves? Do they desire to serve you? Do you desire to serve? There is, there is no room for selfishness within marriage. There is no room for I'm out for myself. I get mine, you get, you get yours kind of thing. Because that's where temptation comes in. And so Paul encourages to come together. But for those of you in the room who have the obvious concern, like, well, I'm not single, or excuse me, I'm not married. Um, I'm single. I may never be married. Or I desire to be married, or my marriage is a wreck. What is the counsel here? And maybe this is a very painful topic. Paul addresses that as well. Paul speaks several times about the anxieties associated with marriage, and rightfully so. We can talk about the good things in marriage, but there is anxiety in marriage, right? Right? You can, you can be honest to the single people in the room. Look at verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. If, you're, if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I, I would spare you of that. That's true. Marriage is a beautiful thing and a great thing. But he's not saying worldly as in um, secular. He's saying worldly of, of, of this earth, meaning that you have to focus on temporal things and not eternal things only. So he goes down to verse 32. I want you to be free from these anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, eternal things. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But as soon as she becomes married, the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay a restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That is the greatest restraint against sexual immorality, the undivided devotion to the Lord. And so if you are single, it is a gift from God because he has given you more time to be in fellowship with him. He has given you more time to worship him. If you are married, it is a gift from God because he has shown you a picture of him and his bride that you get to live with every day in either sense, married or single. We are to be devoted wholeheartedly to the Lord because he is our shepherd. He has drawn us into his bosom and he gives us fountains of living water. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you as a great and awesome God who condescends to our level to speak in terms we can understand, who gives us pictures about water and, 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 and animals because we are simple creatures. Lord, we will never understand why you would love us. We would never understand why you would choose us, why you would send your son to die for us. 
why you would call us beautiful because we are wretched. But you have. In Christ Jesus, we are without spot or blemish. We are washed white as snow. You are a great and loving God. Lord, I pray for our marriages here this morning, that they'd be honoring to you, that they would be fruitful, that they would be pleasing, that they would find pleasure in one another that glorifies you, and that you put a distaste in their mouth for the arms of another. Lord, I pray for those single here this morning who may be single for a time or may be single for the rest of their days here on earth. Lord, may they find contentment in you. May their devotion to you be unparalleled. May they be caught up in heavenly things. May you find them pleasing. May they find you pleasing. May they rest in the bosom of your protection and salvation. May we, as a church, build up marriages. May we have good, godly answers to the world's challenges. May we build up our single people. May we encourage them to devotion to the Lord. May we give them wise counsel. They are not second-class citizens within the church, as often happens within the church. But we all labor in the station to which God has called us. And if it be your will that you call them to marriage, may you provide a godly man or a godly woman to complement them, to build them up, to be this picture of Christ in his church so that he may be glorified in every person in our body and in every church around the globe that his name may be exalted. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.